food makes people happy and drinks make people happy and giving a person an experience. That's the most important thing for me in hospitality, giving each individual that comes and sits in front of me or comes and sits at our restaurant or comes and sits at any bar of work that has given them an experience. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. For many over the last two years, COVID has thrown a huge curveball. Amongst this upheaval, some have experienced life's curveballs in exponential ways too. Not just the challenge of the pandemic, but challenges and uncertainty that can roll in with a new tide at any given moment. Alan Nikolovsky is from family-owned Antico Woodfire Pizza in Norellan, New South Wales. Alan, how are you? Good, man. How you doing? Good. You've um, got a part of a family uh, pizza pizzeria. Well, what's it like being uh, involved in a family uh, operation like that? Um, so, so my background's always been bars. So I kind of came from like running and operating bars, and I was, at the end I ended up becoming like a GM. So coming into the family thing, you you're like always a part of everything. Like, so no matter what happens outside of work with the family, inside of work, everything, it can, it can get a little bit much, but at the same time, it's so, so rewarding because I get to work next to my brother, my sister, my mum and dad, and we get to like experience this amazing thing and achieve all these great things together. It's actually really fun. Can be hard at times, as I said. Well, the last couple of years have been pretty challenging, but and everyone moved to takeaway models. Being a pizza offering, what's it been like in a family operation with a with a product that is traditionally uh, one that people think of of takeaway? Well, we are actually extremely, extremely fortunate. So we've been around for about fifteen years now in the area in in Narellan, in the Camden area. So we've got quite a, a bit of a following. So when it came to like lockdown for us. It meant that for the first period there, like last year when COVID first hit, we were all living at home with mum and dad because it was such such on short times, as you know. We are all living together, working together every day. And then we kind of like, me and my brother spoke to each other at the beginning. We were like, cool, man, well, we might have to work seven days a week during this thing just to see it out because we weren't sure what was going to happen. And I'm sure everyone else felt the same way. And for the first... I think it was about six weeks or so. We worked seven days. We were just like, cool, hustling, 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 getting it done. And then we realized, hold on a second, people really like pizza, no matter what's going on around the world, no matter what's happening. People will always really like pizza. Like, you can be sad, you can be happy, you can not have money. You'll scrape together something to get pizza. People love it. So we were quite fortunate with that. And because we we all work together and we all work so hard and we, we, we try our best to put, like give the best product that we can. And um, like we're, we're, as I said, like we're so fortunate. We've got such a nice following from people around us that we, we actually survived. Okay. It was, it, it was definitely strange. Don't get me wrong. Like standing around, you're not playing like restaurant music. You're just playing like this heavy techno just to try to get through the shift and you're cooking like, you're cooking four or 500 pizzas. You're like, all right, cool. Well, I don't need to listen to this like super nice and chill music. Let's just play some real loud stuff, get it done, hustle and just make it happen. And that's, and that's what we did. It was, it was six very tough weeks, but then we all kind of sat down with a smile on our face and like, oh man, we'll be fine. We'll be cool. Just keep doing what we're doing. Just keep hustling and get it done. We were, as I said, there was a lot of businesses, unfortunately, and I saw so many of my friends having to close down businesses and do all these things due to this. But we were extremely fortunate and something that we're still 
every single time we do anything, we try and thank the community around us and we try and push and we try and give back to the community. We're so thankful for that. We were fine. It was a lot. It was hard work for six to eight weeks, but we were fine. I want to uh, explore uh, your family history uh, shortly, but you mentioned the bars. You've been integral in um, some of the really influential bars in Sydney over the years. What led to your, the interest in working in bars? Um, so the reason I got into bars, I was at uni at the time and I was studying PE teaching and I was like, all right, cool. I'll go to uni and I'll get, I'll get a side job. And I was lucky that I was going to the gym with one of my friends who was running World Bar at the time. I don't know if you know or remember World Bar, like back in King's Cross. Yeah, so he was like, he was like, man, just give me a resume and I'll give you a job. You can pick up teapots and help out. I was like, yeah, cool, sounds great. Funny enough, that's the only resume I ever handed in in my whole life, which is quite nice. Yeah, so I gave him my resume. He gave me a call back. He's like, come this weekend. I was like, yeah, cool. I went in. I was picking up teapots and I was like, holy shit, man, this is the coolest job in the whole wide world. Like, I'm picking up teapots and picking up glasses or like but there's music, it's cool as, and there's all these people I know. And I was like, this is rad. And all my mates were like, oh, you're working at Worldbar. That's so cool. That's mad. That's really cool. And I was doing that and I was at uni and I was like, I was at uni. I think, I think the reason why I went to uni was kind of just like, all right, cool. Just following that trend. You know what I mean? You finish school, you go to uni, you do this, you do that. It's just kind of like that public, like that, that, that trend that everyone does. And I was like, man, I don't like uni. It's not for me. I hated it. I was going there and I was like, oh, this sucks. Just trying to like, I didn't even go to any lectures. And I was like, this isn't for me. This isn't fun. But at the same time, I was working in like one of the coolest nightclubs at the time in Sydney. And I was like, shit, this is fun. And then I was like, oh, well, I'm just going to leave uni. And I left uni and I just went and pursued this career in like bartending. And I started working in this nightclub and picking up like tea, like teapots and everything. And like eventually got pushed up to the bar. And started doing these things. And I remember like it was like a year and a year or so of doing it. And I was like, I had this like, I think, I, how old was I? This is like 13, I was 20. I had this existential crisis. I was like, oh man, I can't keep doing this. I need to actually get my life on track. I was like, I'm going to go back. I'm going to move back to the area. I'm going to go work at an RSL. I'm going to go back to uni. I'm going to finish my teaching degree. So I moved back home to my parents' place, which is in, like, which is in Holsworthy. And I got a job at Moorbank RSL. I lasted two months. I lasted two months. I was like, what the hell am I doing? I was like, I don't like uni. I don't like doing anything. Like, I really enjoy working in bars. And, like, I was, I was quite fortunate that I made really good mates with a lot of people during the World Bar days that one of my other mates was running a bar called Flinders. I don't know if you remember the Flinders in, back in the day. It was, like, it was all the, like, the bang gang guys owned it. Andy Penny was the GM who's like one of my still really good mates and had all these other dudes and my mate was like hey why don't you just come and help us out and just like bartend for a little bit I was like yeah sounds great went over there and then got taught how to like make cocktails and I was like holy shit man this is really good I really really like this I was like well I don't as I said like I don't really like uni so I left uni for the second time and I was like, I'm just going to stick this out, move back to the city, move to Paddington and just like started like working at Flinders, eventually became a manager there. And then from there, I got poached to help the boys at TOs open up TOs. And then I was there, I was there for the beginning. Like I helped like 
that, that that's honestly that's in my opinion in my hospitality career probably my most favorite moment of my hospitality career is being part of the opening for that like we sanded everything together like we built the whole bar together like we put all the tiles in we painted everything together like we like we did everything like from the morning we got in there did everything together when we got lunch ate dinner together and the same thing the next day and it was just like it's just like it's just such a memorable part of my hospitality career which is like in my opinion, Tia's is still probably top two bars in Sydney, if not Australia. When Tia's landed, it made a huge impact on the city. Do you have any stories from those from those times that you can share? Oh man, I've got a, I've got about five hours worth of stories if you want to dig deep. <laughs> but uh, uh, funnily enough, it was actually their tenth birthday yesterday, and I went in and had a couple of drinks with Jeremy, who's one of the owners, who's one of my dearest friends, and we just. And we were just talking about some of the stuff that we did and how we did everything. And there's just there, there was so many funny and dumb stories. Like one of one of the one of the funniest ones was we thought it was a great idea to get axolotls on the bar. <laughs> and so we had, do you know what an axolotl is? Like a weird yeah. pet that turns like if you put it on ground, it turns into like a weird lizard thing. And if you keep it in the water, it doesn't. And we, <laughs> And we were just like, we had these two pets and a fish tank behind a bar, a bar that's been run by 22-year-olds. And, like, quite fortunately, it was probably the most popular bar at the time. Like, we used to have a queue down the road, man, before before 4 o'clock, before we went open. Like, it was packed. And then we just, <laughs> and we, we were like, oh, yeah, cool. Let's get axolotls. That's a genius idea. Worst idea we've ever had. We had these two pets, and like, man, we just we got to give these up. We ended up giving them away to like another family, like a friend of ours that ended up looking after them. Well, that's just one of the dumb stories that we did. Like, we used to, me and Jeremy, when we finished work, we used to try and have a competition who could stack more chairs on top of their head, like bar stools. Um, what else did we do, man? There's there's so many. I, I could go on for hours. As I said, like, it's such a wild busy time but it's the most memorable time of my life like me and Russell who was one of the other guys that opened it with us for the first seven weeks I think we worked every day I think it was like seven weeks maybe six and I remember like we got our first day off together and we're like alright cool man let's uh let's just go to a bar together so we went to Shady Pie instead of doing what normal people would do which is go and relax and chill out we went to a bar together and had heaps of drinks instead of relaxing but man, like as I said, like that is such a such a memorable part, and those guys are such good friends of mine now, and I'm so proud of everything they're doing. Like they just, I don't know if you noticed, released the Seltzer OK. They just got number 23 in the world for Cantina OK. Like it's wild, yeah, it's wild. They're such good dudes too, and everything they're doing is amazing. You briefly mentioned Shady Pines, which became a big part of your life for a period of time. T- tell us about that. Four years, four years. So I, after Tio's, I went to Baxter. So I was at Baxter for two years. At the time I was at Baxter Inn, we were, we were number six in the world. We got number one bar team in Australasia two years running. We got, we were, at that by that point, what, I wasn't a part of, main, not, not a main part of that whole team, but like by that point, we pretty much won every single award you could in Australia. Like if you walked into the staff room, it was just... We had to build extra shelves for like all the awards. There's just awards everywhere. Um, that was that. So when I was at Tio's, I was an okay bartender, but I like 
I, I was there for fun. I was there to have a good time. That's what it was about. I was 24, whatever. When I went to Baxter, it was like, it was such a like, I, w- I wouldn't call it a rude awakening because I, I, I don't like to use that word, but it was like, it was a thing where I was like, hold on, I just got thrown in this pool of some of the best bartenders in Australia and some of the best managers in Australia. And here I am trying to make my, you know, ma- like become who I am. So I got like everything I knew became so much more refined. I went from being an okay bartender to actually quite a good one. Like my service was okay, it was fun, became really refined and did everything. And I was just like, oh man, holy shit, there's a whole other world of bartending. Before it was, for me, prior to Baxter, bartending was just something you did just to have fun. But when I went to Baxter, I was like, oh man, it kind of like, and it's something that I I don't think a lot of people realize. It's something that I, I was like, People think hospitality is just like a gateway job, you know what I mean? They're like, oh, yeah, cool. It's just a job I do while I'm at uni or it's a job I do. But people don't realize that it's actually – it's a career. Like it's one of the best careers you could ever have. It, gets you, it allows you to meet people and do these things and become this like – I don't know, like the best version of yourself because you learn so much about yourself and you become louder and you have fun and you're funnier and you're doing all these things. And that's what Baxter was for me. It just made me realize that I was like, all right, cool. So I actually really like what I'm doing. And now I'm going to pursue this seriously. So it was there that I got the wake-up call. And it was there for two years. And then after, yeah, it was two years. And I remember I got the phone call from Jason and Anton. It's one of those, it's one of those questions that you don't need to think about. When someone asks you, you're like, yeah, straight away. I was like, yep, done. I was like, oh, and then, and then I thought I thought about it. I walked away. I was like, oh, hold on. I should have asked a few more questions, but I didn't. It was just like, they're like, do you want to be the next GM with Shady? He's like, yep, done. I'm, I'm there. I'm ready. When do I start? Tell us about Shady Pines and what was so special about it for you. Oh, man, as you know, it's the coolest bar in, in my opinion in the world. It's easily the best bar in the world. The, the, what Anton and Jason did at the beginning and then what Jeremy and Alex went in there and, and every other staff member like Muffin and Bobby and everyone – Everyone that went in there and had their own touch to it created the most beautiful bar in the world. I still go there. I ran that bar for four years. I still go there to this day, sit at the end of the bar, and I'm still in awe of it. Like, I look around, and I'm like, man, this is just cool. You walk down those stairs, and you get lost. You're in a different world straight away. You forget where you are. What is it that makes a great bartender? Being nice. That's what makes a great bar. It's not about – you can teach – anyone how to make a cocktail i can teach a monkey how to make a cocktail in 10 minutes probably i'm not i'm not i'm, I'm, I'm not disregarding from bartender I'm not, I'm not saying bartenders are not good but you can't teach people personality you can't teach people how to be nice to people there was some i don't know if you know a guy called marco farioni who used to own the island bar and a couple of other places and he said one thing that i will never forget you have 30 seconds from the time that a person walks into your bar to grab their attention. After that, you lose that person. So I don't care what you're doing. I don't care what you are. You just, you get their attention, you say hi, you do everything. That's what makes a great bar. A person that greets someone and a person that makes someone feel like they're sitting in their lounge room. You're not sitting in a bar. If I, if I have a person in front of me, I want them to feel like I'm, they're at my house on the couch and we're having a drink. My friend Jess Arnott, who's from Perth, said one thing. She's like, I don't care what you order, man. If you order a vodka soda, I'll make you the best goddamn vodka soda in this whole wide world. 
I'm not going to judge you on what you order. I'm going to make sure you have the best time. Some of these people, like, and you got to remember, some of these people that come out to the city live in the suburbs. So some of these people will be saving for six months and some to 12 months because they've got kids or whatever to come out and have one night in the city. And if you're a dick about it, if you're like, you order a vodka soda, no, you don't have to have that, like, or whatever. You're a prick. You just ruined this person's night. That could potentially be their only one night of the year. Like, I don't care who you are. I don't care what you do. I don't care what you order. You make sure that every person that sits in front of you has the best night of their goddamn life, and that's what makes a great bartender. I don't care if you can make a nuclear daiquiri six ways, upside down, sideways. If you don't make a person in front of you feel comfortable and happy, you're not doing a good job. You're not a good bartender. There's no ego in bartending. People need to forget ego is non-existent. It's not a part of bartending. You mentioned the family uh, restaurant that's been around for 14 years, but take us back to when you were young. What, what sort of role did food play in your family? Huge, huge, huge role. So my dad opened up his first restaurant when I was five years old. So, so you go, I'll tell you about my life. I grew up in Macedonia. We left, we left Macedonia when I was 10, moved to New Zealand, lived there till I was 13. Also learned how to speak English when I was in New Zealand prior to that. Like I knew the basics, but prior to that, we had no idea. We lived in New Zealand till I was 13, then moved here when I was 13, which is 20 years ago. But my dad opened up his first pizza restaurant when I was five years old called Allen & Co. It was in our neighborhood. That, yeah, it was in our neighborhood where I grew up in Macedonia. And he did that with my uncle, who's his brother. And he did quite well from it. And then they ended up opening up another spot in a town in Macedonia, which is where I'm from. So I'm from Skopje, which is the capital. But um, Okrid is another part of the Macedonia, which is kind of like the touristy part. And opened up another small, tiny, tiny restaurant in a, in a part like they called the Old Town, which is like, it was right next to a church. Ended up becoming so popular, they used to have to borrow seats from the restaurant next door and try and fit people in. And he's like, all right, cool. We're just like, wherever you can grab a seat, just sit down. And from there, he ended up getting a spot right in, um, so, so, what, so what we call, I don't know what you'd call it here. Like, you know how Pitt Street Mall, we call it Charishia, which is like where people hang out and walk through and there's all the cafes. He ended up having a spot there, which ended up becoming one of the most popular spots in Macedonia. And I was quite fortunate. I grew up in those places. So, like, I still have memories. When I was eight years old, I'd be in bars playing pool with all the waiters and waitresses till, like, 2 a.m., like, just hanging out and playing pool and, like, growing up in this restaurant, making pizzas when I was, like, seven, eight years old. So I guess I guess you could say that I always, I always grew up in hospitality. I was always around it. So then after that, we left there and then we moved – to New Zealand and dad did all these other things he like he went and worked for Wendy's at the time and then when we moved to Australia he he opened up the first Krispy Kreme wow. in Liverpool yeah which is something that which is something that he's still very proud of and I'm sure he'll tell you about it if you ever speak to him um, yeah so he opened up the first Krispy Kreme here and then from there he was kind of like it was always in the back of his head. But that's one of those people that no matter what he's doing, he's always thinking five years ahead, no matter how old he is. So it was always in the back of his head. He was like, "Man, I'm going to do another restaurant here." And then we opened up the one out west, as I said, 15 years ago, and did that. And then, like, we all built it together. Like, my brother was like, "How old was my brother then? 12. I was 
I just finished high school. My sister was like eight and we all put the tiles in and we did everything together and did it all. And then I went and, as I said to you prior, like tried to do my career in uni and all these other things which didn't really work out. And then I did all the bar stuff. But I was, I was always kind of helping out whenever I could back at the restaurant. And then after running Shady's, I was like, all right, cool. Well, I'm kind of done in Sydney. Like I've achieved everything I wanted to achieve and more like I got nominated for everything I wanted to get nominated for like I had the best staff and some of my staff members now like some of the best bartenders in the world like Evan Strove worked with me and he's now best bartender in Australia Louis who moved to London is now the head bartender at Lioness Iggy is running like helping run Alberto's there's like there was so many of my bartenders like Jasmine who was one of my favorites went and she's now working at Cantina like I had all this amazing stuff and I did everything and I was like, I don't really want to do anything else. I'm kind of like done here. And then at that time, Jason, who was still part of Swirl House, had a bar called Dulcie's down in Marimbula. I don't know if you know where Marimbula is, down south. Mm, yeah. And he's like, hey, man, sounds like you need a break. Why don't you go down south and just hang out? You can live in my house. And I lived in a sweet mansion called the Grange, which was built in like 1840s. It was like a proper mansion with like haunted and it was wild. And I helped run the bar down there and I had a, I had a blast. It was just like a great nine months. And while I was down there with my really good mate, Ride, we were sitting at the RSL one day and we both love like natural wine and wine tastings. And we're sitting at the RSL having Coronas. Oh, don't ask me why. And we were like, oh, man, we need to put on a wine tasting down here. I reckon people would come down and it could be cool. It could be a lot of fun for people. And then from then on, and he said to me, he goes, I've got this great name. I've got this great name for a wine tasting, which actually I found out later it wasn't his. It's another mate of ours called Joel, who does Benson and the Mooch wines, which are delicious. But it was called, it's called Natty by Nature. And we're like, oh, yeah, like that, that, that band, Naughty by Nature. It's cool. So then we're like, for the next three months, we worked on this wine tasting, which ended up turning into like a small 400-person festival that we had like all these cool winemakers and amazing bands. And like we had like, I think it was like 85% of people were from out of Marimbula. Like it was like people from Melbourne, people from Canberra, people from Sydney all flew down just for this tiny thing that me and my friend Ryan decided to come up with while having Coronas at um, Marimbula RSL. <laughs> And it was great. And then after that, people were like, oh, we want you to do like Natty by Nature here. We want you to do it here. We want you to do it here. And we did a few things. And we're like, no, nah, let's just, we did it all. And then we're like, no, nah, we're too busy doing our own thing. Let's put it on ice. But then we'll come back and we'll do something. But we decided we'd only do anything in Marimbula. The only place we'll do Natty by Nature will always be in Marimbula. So we've kind of been chatting about it recently. We're probably going to do one next year in October, again, down south, but try and Focus more on the music and the wine, less on the food. So that's that's another chapter. That's, a, that, that's just something else that we're working on. You mentioned your Macedonian background and that you grew up there. Tell us a bit about the cuisine. Is there any dishes or feasts that you can share that sort of exemplify um, your experiences? Well, I know, I know one of your favourite questions is talk about family and food and something, and, and some, something that it's in Macedonia is – so family oriented and so food oriented like like I'll give you a perfect example like someone will invite you for a coffee at their house you know like here you go for a coffee and you're like alright cool we'll have a coffee there nah man 
it's like a it's a whole different thing. It's a four course meal plus coffee. The whole house gets cleaned. So like you go to someone's house for a coffee, there's there's salads, there's all these homemade pastries, there's sarma, which is in um I guess the easiest way for people to know it's the cabbage leaves wrapped with meat and rice and there's everything. So like for me growing up over there, everything was food. Food for me, when people go, oh, what's food mean to you? People are like, oh, yeah, I just eat. That's not that's not what that means to me. Food for me is family. Food for me is getting together. It's this whole experience. Like when we sit down and have lunch, we sit down at three and we won't finish till six because you sit down and you have like, you have your entree, you have like little soup and then you snack on things and you go again, you have rakia, which is like um, a drink that we make over there from grapes that you grow and then you have like different parts of the pork. So another thing about Macedonia, because it's not a very rich country, is they they will get a whole pork. The whole family will save for the whole year and buy a whole pork, but then they'll look after it and they'll help it grow. But then when they use it, they actually use every single part of it. So there's no waste. So that whole like you know how people here got obsessed with farm to table a few years ago? Well that's that's what I grew up with. Everything over there is farm to table. It's what you grow up because people don't have money. So it's like, all right, cool. Well, we're going to grow our own veggies in our backyard. We're going to buy this pig and we're going to use every single part of it. So everyone's a butcher. Everyone's a farmer. And everyone's eating and making this most amazing food. Someone like my grandma is one of the best chefs I've ever had food with. So the cuisine, like when you say the cuisine there, it's just like it's a lot because it's a cold country. So it's a lot of like heavy stews and heavy meats, a lot of like – it's a very Turkish kind of like influence, but also that like Balkan kind of influence, like a lot of like still like veggies with stews and whole animals and stuff. It's great food. Don't get me wrong. When I go there, I put on, if I'm there for two weeks, I'll put on five kilos. <laughs> it's amazing. It's like, as I said, man, like they're like eating there is a different thing. Like when I go back there, like I eat a kilo of tomatoes at a meal because the tomatoes taste like tomatoes. They're grown in my grandma's backyard, everything. I'm like, holy shit, man, this tastes so good. And it's like eating there is like something I look forward to. Here, I'm just like, oh, cool, I'm hungry. I'll just eat. When I'm hungry there, I'm like, oh, man, I know this is going to be amazing because I know I'm going to sit down with like five, six people and it's going to be like, it's it's going to be a two-hour meal. And I get excited for it. And, pe- and the thing is, I go back there and get excited, but everyone over there is doing that every single day. So for them, it's just like, oh, why are you so excited? Why are you so happy to do this? It's like, you guys don't get it. Like in, like we we're so busy in Australia that we just eat to get full. We don't sit, we don't have the whole, let's sit down, let's listen to music. Like we'll do everything. We'll eat together. Like for us, that is like, if you do that here, you're telling your friends about it for a month. You're like, oh man, I had two friends over. I had two friends over and we listened to music and we ate for two hours. Over there, it's just normal eating. It's wild. It's like it's it's such like it's like it's a really poor country, but money's not a thing. It's about like family and happiness and the way food makes everyone happy. It's I like I get this whole new lease in life every time I can't go back home. Like I step, like I get off the plane, I step in, I'm like, all right, cool, I'm home now. Like it's it's incredible. The last year and a half has been challenging for many because of the pandemic. But what, what's it been like for you personally? Have, you, have there been personal challenges and changes for you? Heaps. Jesus, where can I start? Um, all right, so 
how long ago now? Four months ago, four, five, four, five months ago, I got a puppy. I was like, all right, cool, man. Well, you're busy, you're doing work, but you kind of just go home and go to work. What do I want to do? I'm going to get a puppy. So I got a puppy and then to, like a week in, he had to go to the vet. He had to have emergency stuff there. And then I took him home and then I was like, all right, cool. Well, I was like, I want to kind of get my own health on track. I went to the doctor to get a blood test and um, excuse my language, but one of my testicles was a lot uh, bigger than the other one. I was like, oh, I might, I might get this examined. I'll see, I'll see what happens. That was on a Wednesday. I, I, I won't ever forget this. That was on a Wednesday at 10 a.m. I went and got an ultrasound. And then I was like, cool, well, I'm going to go to my friend's bar, stuff, Beaver and Bondi. I'm going to sit down. I'm going to work on some stuff. And I was sitting there doing my thing on the computer. And then my GP called me, who's amazing. If you don't have a good GP, get one because they're the, the best people ever. <laughs> and then he called me and he goes, hey, man, um, I don't know how to put this, but I need you to go tomorrow to get a CAT scan. I need you to get a blood test. And I need you to come and talk to me in the morning because I'm about 95% sure it's cancer. And that's like, man, like growing up, that's the scariest word ever. Like you don't want to say the C word. Like it's like... It's one of these things, right? Like you never think in your whole life that you have cancer. It's something that you never think about, right? And I was like, uh, I was like, okay, cool. It, it took a while for me to digest and I went home and I kind of did what every other human would do, which is do heaps of research, which is, is not what you're supposed to do. And just like got really deep into it. And I was like, all right, cool, cool, cool. So I woke up the next morning. I went and saw him. He calmed me down. I went and got a blood test. And then I went and saw my urologist. I had an appointment at 5 p.m. Luckily, my urologist is actually probably one of the best ones in Australia. So he got stuck in surgery for an extra three hours. So I was sitting there in a waiting room, knowing that potentially that I'll have that I'll have cancer for an extra three hours. And I was like, okay, cool. I'm just going to sit here, sit here, sit here. And I went in and he examined me. And he looked at me and he goes, okay, cool. Like, so casually, man. Like, I cannot I cannot stress this enough how casually he said that. He goes, all right, so it looks like it looks like it's a tumor. It looks like you have cancer. And I was like, what do you mean? He's like, yeah, so uh, I'm going to book you in for surgery tomorrow at 7.30. I was like, whoa, whoa. Hold, on, hold on, man. Like, you can't just tell me I've got cancer and then, like, cut me out tomorrow. I was like, can I have a few days to digest it and tell my family? And he's like, yeah, cool. That was on Thursday night. So I've, I potentially had it on Wednesday. I knew I had it on Thursday. And then he booked me in for surgery Monday morning at 7.30. They sliced me open, took my one testicle. I've got one now, which is kind of funny. There's heaps of good jokes there. And then it was just like two weeks of recovery. And I'm unfortunately, I'm one of those people that can't sit still. So I think I did about a week and a bit. And I was like, I'm going to go back to work. I got to get moving. So I went back and did a few shifts. But then during this period, right, because it was so quick and everything was happening so fast, for me it was it was surgery just to get rid of my nut. Like it wasn't anything serious. I was like, oh, whatever. It's just like they'll just get rid of it and I'll be fine. It wasn't until three or four weeks, uh, three weeks after my surgery that I went into the Kinghorn Cancer Center and I was sitting there and I was just like, there's cancer written everywhere and there was like, people that are older around me and one of the ladies unfortunately had to get rushed to emergency because her stuff was gone and I was like oh holy shit I had cancer like and it clicked then it was like okay cool so this is quite serious and at that time I still didn't know that I was in the clear 
So I still had to go get more CAT scans and more, which I still have to continue getting blood tests and stuff for the next five years. But at that time, I wasn't sure that I was in the clear. So I sat down with the oncologist and he's like, look, luckily it's stage one. It doesn't show that it escaped the testicle, any of the cancer cells, but we still need to wait for the test results. There's potential that you might get chemo. And funnily enough, the first thing that came to my head when they told me that I might have chemo is like, what happens if I lose my mustache, man? Like, am I going to have to get a fake mustache to wear in the hospital? You know what I mean? Like, that's, that's who I am. I don't care about my hair, but I don't want to lose my stash. And then, and then, yeah, so I had that and then like I went home and I was like, cool. Well, lucky at that point, I was like, cool, it's stage one. It's okay. None of the cancer cells had escaped. It's okay, but still, I didn't know that I nothing spreads. And not until two weeks after that, when I got blood tests and more CAT scans, and I went back in, and my oncologist was like, "Hey, everything's perfect. There's no more tumor readings in your blood. The, the lymph, whatever the lymph stuff is in your stomach, has decreased, and looks like you're in the clear. Looks like everything's fine." I was like, "Oh man, sweet, like." I'm doing it. I'm going to be okay. She's like, yeah, everything's fine. You're doing great. We still need to continue doing the checkups, but like, looks like you're going to be all right. So when you say how, how was a year and a half, it was a roller coaster, man, but it was like, it was a roller coaster of five weeks. Like from the time I found out to the time I was clear, it was five weeks. So I didn't really have enough time to digest it. As I said, the first three weeks were cool. I'm just going to get my nut cut off. Lance Armstrong's only got one nut. That's pretty cool. So I was like, but not until not until I went into the cancer center, I was like, holy shit! All right, cool, man. This is quite serious. This is really good. And, I, and like, I never, I never wanted to, I never wanted to kind of like, I posted about it, and I made sure in the post, I was like, look, man, this isn't a sympathy post. The reason why I'm doing this is because it's such a thing that humans do, where we're like, oh, cool, that doesn't look right, but it'll be fine. I'll just leave it for a little bit longer. If I jumped on it a bit earlier, maybe it could have been less a problem but because being a human you're like no it's fine it'll be all right it'll go away it never went away it got bigger and it got worse to the extent where i ended up having cancer so what i'm trying to say is if you have any issues anything go get your shit checked out man like (laughs) don't leave it aside go see a gp go get a blood test all that stuff's free with the chance to reflect back on that experience now has it had an impact on you and the way that you're living your life 100 percent more than ever it was something that you know like you know how people are always like oh yeah like i do things i never i'm never gonna regret it that's bullshit man like people are always like oh yeah i'm gonna go do this thing i'm gonna go do this no one does it everyone just sits in bed looks at their phone and instagram for that extra hour and a half in the morning and then they don't end up doing anything and they get lazy about it going through what i did and knowing that potentially it could be quite bad now look at things differently i'm like all right cool well I'm going to go do the washing. I'm not just going to leave it. I'll do the washing. I'm going to go to the gym. Oh, I won't just not. I'll just do it. Like, I do things now. Like, cool. Well, I wanted to, I want to, I want to start this thing. Like, do start working on Natty by Nature next year, like to put on another festival. Instead of just writing the name down, I'll actually start working on it. I'll do things. It's like, it's, it's this whole new thing. You're like, oh man, I went through a fair bit. Well, how can I fix it? I'm just gonna. I'm just gonna actually do these things. Like I think that's what it's done for me. It's made all of this. You may as well do these things properly. For someone that grew up in pizzerias and now involved in the family business, um, what makes a great pizza? The dough, man. It's the dough. You can put whatever toppings you want on. It. It's the dough. 
My dad's had the same dough recipe for 35 years. There's only, it's only me, him, my brother, and my mum that kind of like know it, but he's always tweaking with it. He's always doing something. It's the dough. And people will tell you that as well. They'll come into a restaurant and be like, man, this dough's great. My dad, like, and I'm not being biased, my dad's got one of the best doughs around that I've ever had. A great pizza is in the dough. It's in the base. Like, you can't, like, what's, what's that saying about building a house? You can't build a house without the framework or whatever it is. That's the way pizza is. You can't make a good pizza if the dough shit. You can put the most expensive salami in and duya and prawns and whatever. If the dough shit, it's going to taste like shit. It's basically it. It's always in the dough. You've uh, made a name for yourself in bars and gone back to the family pizzeria. What, what is it that you love about what you do in hospitality? I make people happy. Food makes people happy and drinks make people happy and giving a person an experience. That's the most important thing for me in hospitality, giving each individual that comes and sits in front of me or comes and sits at our restaurant or comes and sits at any bar of work that is giving them an experience. That's the most rewarding thing. It's like when you see a person, they come in and they'll order this drink that they have no idea about. They may have read online. They may have done something and they order this drink and you're like, all right, cool. Well, let's just work through it. That that's a sh- might be a shit drink, but let's figure out what you want and you do things together and you work through all this stuff and, you give this person this experience and you just, it's that smile, like you give it to them and they're like, oh, this is amazing. And you can tell like they, they might be talking there with their wife or with their partner or whoever they are, but they look at each other and it's just this like genuine smile and experience or like their friends or whoever they are. And that, for me, it's that smile and that genuine joy that makes me do what I do and will continue to forever do what I do. I don't care. For me, it's not about money. For me, it's not about anything. For me, it's just that. It's that genuine joy of people when you make their night or their day or their week. Well, you've made a lot of people happy, Alan, and we're absolutely honoured to have you share a little bit of your story today on Deep in the Weeds. Uh, Please keep in touch and uh, good luck, and we'll catch up again soon. Thank you, my friend. Thank you so much for chatting. I hope you have a great day. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we take a deep dive into the lives of the incredible people who ply their trade in the food and hospitality sector. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds Podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well.